0: Welcome to Head to Toe, stories from the history and future of healthcare. Hello and welcome to an Extraordinary Stories episode of Head to Toe. I'm Maria McMillan, a nurse, writer, and your podcast host. In this episode, I interview Dean Hall, a licensed clinical marriage and family therapist and the first person to swim the entire length of the 184-mile Willamette River with an active cancer diagnosis. After which, he found out he was suddenly leukemia-free without ever having undergone chemotherapy. We talk about his incredible recovery, overcoming trauma, and the science behind the mind-body connection. His tale is truly an extraordinary one, so I won't waste time with a lengthy intro. Please enjoy Dean's story.
1: Dean Hall, welcome to Head to Toe, my nerdy
0: podcast.
1: We are in Cathedral Park. Portland, Oregon, it's a beautiful day right now, and we're kind of looking at the river that he swam, the end of the 184-mile stretch. It's beautiful. Dean, thanks for being here.
2: Oh, thanks for having me. I feel so much more comfortable now that you called it a nerdy podcast. It means I'll fit right in.
1: (laughs) For those of you guys listening, Dean Hall, uh, we're going to briefly kind of go over his, what did I call it, overview of Dean's timeline of tragedy, (laughs) (laughs) which you're going to have...
2: School of Hard Knocks. Graduate
1: School of Hard Knocks. I like it. So to get the really ins and outs, you guys are going to have to go to his website to read the whole story because it really should just be a movie. It's really inspiring. So we're going to gloss over it kind of Please. briefly here. <laughs> Dean was diagnosed with leukemia in 2006 and had complications that landed him in the hospital like pneumonia. He went through chemotherapy, yes?
2: No. You
1: didn't did. okay so this was my one of my first questions so you, you were diagnosed with leukemia and then they said okay' we're, these are the options for treatment and then you said
2: absolutely not no I didn't say that at all the well it's kind of funny how I was first diagnosed and I, I know that probably isn't even appropriate to say boy I had a cancer diagnosis and it is hilarious <laughs> no I I uh, I was working as a therapist about 70 hours a week, um, way too much. You're only supposed to work about 25, 30. And I knew I was tired, and I was going in for a total knee replacement. And they did the blood test, and the nurse called me up and said, hey, uh, you need to come in and take another blood test. Well, I'd never really been sick in my life. And I'd grown up in this one little town, in kansas because i grew up here in portland but i played a lot of soccer for the junior timbers actually yeah but i thought i was good and i had several scholarships and on a lark i went out to kansas to play not knowing i'd fall in love with a cute little kansas girl and put myself in exile for love and i did and so I was in this tiny little Kansas town. So most of the folks and the health professionals, I had probably taught in school at some point. And so when they told me the blood test was fouled, I just imagined that it was one of my poor little sixth graders that maybe I didn't teach well enough. And so I said, oh, don't, don't get anyone in trouble. I'll come back in. And she said, huh? And I said, what? And she said, no, just come back in. And I said, oh, OK, just as long as no one's in trouble. And she said, just come back in. And so I came back in and this is how blind I think you can be. Sometimes I came back in, they did a whole nother battery of tests and it still never occurred to me that maybe I was sick. And so then my doctor actually came to my office and he looked white as a sheet. And I said, Hey, what what can I do for you? And he said, it's not what you can do for me. it's what I got to tell you. And this was only like six days before Christmas. And he was scared to death because at that time I had, a, I had features of both acute and chronic leukemia. Immediately, they wanted to do chemo, and I said, absolutely not. I'm not going to do it unless I absolutely know I have to. And they said, well, we can't make you. And I said, what are my options? And they said, well, you could wait for a week or two to see which direction this goes. But if it's acute, you'll have to do it immediately. And thankfully, it wasn't. It, it turned into being CLL.
1: So you decided not to do chemo. You kind of waited out. You go through therapy of some kind at this time, or you're just taking care of yourself with general health?
2: Yeah, they wanted me to do a couple different kinds of therapy. Uh, but I, again, uh, I guess I'm just belligerent and stubborn. I looked at my options, and I'd seen so many people that had done those with long-term devastating health effects that I thought I would just try to get my life in balance a bit. I just slowed down all my working, changed my diet, started doing things like trying to sleep six to eight hours a night, which I'd never done, and take care of myself in that way. Okay, so back to the timeline
1: of tragedy. Your wife of over 30 years suddenly dies of a brain tumor during all this along the way lymphomas decides to show up as a buddy to your leukemia it's it just gets worse from there you just you're not doing well you're circling the drain and then at some point you decide I'm gonna swim a lake in Oklahoma
2: (laughs) yeah Yeah, big mistake not really doing the math and realizing all the lakes in Oklahoma are man-made so they're just like petri dishes filling up with bacteria And I had always done a lot of swimming, um, what they call open water swimming. I like what they call it in the U.K., they call it wild swimming. makes me feel a little more like a stud, even though I'm really not. And uh, so I decided to swim across this lake. It was only about a mile, and I did so only to have very significant strep throat-like symptoms within a day or two, and it just kept getting worse and worse until I actually lost consciousness. I don't remember for about three or four days until I woke up in ICU um, with viral meningitis. That's real bad. I'm an ICU nurse.
1: That's that's bad. So you go through that viral meningitis. You have a long hospital stay and a long recovery. The leukemia was back at this point getting worse and then you kind of hit this rock bottom movement where you decide to move back home to Portland. And along the way, you find a childhood journal that has your bucket list that you wrote. I don't know. How old were you at the time, you think?
2: I think it was 10 or 11.
1: Okay, 10 or 11. And on it is Swim the English Channel. <laughs> <laughs> and then this kind of gives you a little bit of a new zest for life. And you're just like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm going to start swimming
2: yeah i i what actually happened is i knew i was dying i was down to 159 pounds and i'm six one and a half i usually run when i'm fit at about 198 to 205 and so 159 i you could see my pelvis and every rib i look like i just walk on, walked out of auschwitz it was not a pretty sight and i was looking in the mirror and I realized I didn't really even recognize myself, and I thought, and this is hard to admit, but I thought, you know, I've had a good run. This has been nice. I've uh, had a long-term love affair. I've built a profitable and thriving business. I feel like I've helped a lot of people. I've written a book. I, I've had a good run. I, you know, no one would know if I just let the leukemia take me. And then uh, I kind of uh, was shocked by even feeling that way because I've never felt suicidal in my life. And I realized my beautiful daughter was 21. She just lost her mama. I needed to do something. I was being entirely selfish. And so I thought, I just got kind of desperate. How could I bring myself back to life? Well, I knew the power of purpose, giving your heart in mind is something that you're very passionate about has that kind of power but i didn't care about anything and so for weeks i just kind of was scratching my head wondering what i was going to do feeling like i couldn't do anything because i was so weak and i really didn't care to do anything and so i i found this whole journal and i started looking through it thinking okay at one point in my life i cared and wanted to do something and that's when i found uh, i was going to swim the english channel and it made no sense whatsoever but that's that's what caught hold of me i thought okay i'll do this thing yeah and so that's when i went to cascade athletic club and started swimming you guys just got to go to his website it, there's it, it's all
1: told out from there it's got to be a movie and then at some point i'll i'll be like i interviewed this movie star this about and then russell crowe will play you yeah. wouldn't that be great <laughs> Okay, so, so you start training for swimming, and then in 2014, from June 2nd to June 27th, you swam all 184 miles of the Willamette River. The first person to do that. And and you go through it, and you feel renewed, proud that you never gave up on yourself, and then you get your first blood work done after your big swim, the big Willamette swim, and it shows that you were in total remission from your leukemia and you are cancer free.
2: Yeah, I uh, started going down. My my dad also had CLL, which uh, I guess is pretty rare. It's not genetic, and uh, he had gone down to University of California to San Diego, University of California San Diego, to Dr. Castro's, like number three in the world for CLL. I was doing so poorly just before the swim he decided to pay for me to go down and see this guy. And he was interested in my swim, but he thought it was pretty dangerous. And he, he spent actually two hours with me, and he put his hand on my knee and he said, Dean, this is great that you're doing this, but you have to remember your immune system so suppressed, this could be life-threatening. And I said, yeah, doc, I know, but what do you want me to do, die on my couch? I'm not gonna do that. And so then when I went back down to him uh, and they took the blood tests again, he was stunned because not only was it in remission, the CLL, and it's never supposed to go away, was gone. And he said if he hadn't done the blood test himself, he would think somebody had misdiagnosed me. That's an incredible,
1: extraordinary story and entirely too big for my podcast. But I, I love that y- you told it. To me, and thank you so much for sharing that experience with me. I want to talk a little bit about your healing and your thoughts on healthcare since you experienced a lot of it as a patient and a family member, and and you're a healthcare provider in a sense. You're a licensed clinical marriage and family therapist. Did I get that right? Yes. All that okay. Um, and so you take it. You do take care of people. The mind is just as important as the body. And I'd kind of like to hear a little bit about how on earth you think you were cured of cancer.
2: Well, I think regaining my purpose was huge. But I had read about ecotherapy, and I was convinced uh, that as humans, we are living totally out of our natural environment. But I hadn't read all the research, particularly Wallace J. Nichols' research on the blue mind. And one of the things I noticed in swimming, because it took me... I swam 8 to 10 hours a day for 22 days. So that's a lot of time in the water that all of a sudden things were opening up and I was giving my per- myself permission to grieve in ways I really hadn't because I'm a baby boomer and we were all taught, you know, big boys don't cry, all that kind of stuff, all that nonsense. And even though mentally I knew that wasn't correct, I just really hadn't allowed myself to do the work. Well, face down in the water with the goggles on, you can cry all you want. Nobody's going to know. But I think it was more than that. Things just started happening. One of the things that Dr. Castro believes was the most important was the first two weeks the river temperature was in the 40s. The first day in Eugene, it was 42 degrees. And that sounds warm, uh, unless you know that if you run your tap water for five minutes and get it as cold as it can be, it's probably somewhere in the 60s. So it was really, really cold. I was going into uh, full-blown hypothermia about every 45 minutes, even though I had a three-mil wetsuit on, and we had to get me out and kind of warm me up. And when you go into hypothermia, it boosts your immune system and metabolism. And he thinks that my immune system was so routinely boosted. That's the closest he can come as to why I did so well.
1: That's fascinating. From my ICU nurse perspective, we, we do sometimes things something called therapeutic hypothermia. And uh, what that is is people who have cardiac arrest, um, their heart stops and someone does CPR, and uh, let's say we get a, a pulse back, we get their heart going again, but they don't wake up, they're, 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 you know, they don't open their eyes or follow commands, then we will actually physically cool someone down. We'll put a catheter in one of their big veins and we'll infuse cold, um, saline to get their core body temperature down to like 36 degrees Celsius or 33 degrees Celsius, depending on who you talk to. And there is evidence out there that shows that that preserves brain function, and so we do that for a, about a three-day period, and then we warm people up to their core temperature, which in humans in Celsius is about 37, and there is scientific evidence that has shown that that will preserve neurological function after a heart attack or a cardiac arrest, so that's interesting that you bring that up, because I know that there is scientific evidence out there for therapeutic hypothermia in, in cardiac arrest patients, so that's really interesting, that theory that you talked about, about the cold, and preserving your metabolism and that's that's fascinating I read some quotes on your website that really resonated with me and I think other people and I am hoping you might elaborate a little bit on it um, the first one is my doctors objected my family protested and my friends pleaded but I felt I had nothing to lose
2: yeah at that point in my life I really felt I had nothing to lose I mean I had lost this woman that I'd loved, and basically, as melodramatic as it sounds, given my life to. I, I mean, I grew up the son of two mountain climbers. Uh, I'm a third generation Mazama, and that's what I dearly loved. Well, you're not doing a lot of mountain climbing in Kansas. Every day for 33 years, I was quietly homesick, and she's gone and then i gave up my practice Uh, i'd worked on that for 25 years that was gone i didn't have uh, i had built a speaking career and was doing a lot with a book that i'd written i didn't have the energy or the will for that all the friends that i'd built over the years back there were pretty much gone and then to make matters worse i thought i had this spiritual awakening we now call shock Uh, and I gave everything away to the poor and it was a beautiful experience but then about six months later when the shock wore off I realized I now too was poor (laughs) Uh, so so I really felt like I didn't have anything left or anything to lose and the only thing I really had left was my daughter who had just lost her mama. And I knew that I had to show her that I was either going to do my best to live or go out swinging. And I thought, even if I die in the Willamette, it leaves her a legacy. It leaves her knowing their dad really tried above and beyond. The
1: second quote on your website that resonated with me, which I think is sort of your mantra now is that the extraordinary becomes possible when you make it impossible to remain ordinary. How did, how did you come up with that and how is that in what you do now?
2: Well, I was so sick. Uh, the first day I went swimming, I only was able to do 11 laps and it took me over an hour. Uh, that's uh, <laughs> what a great swimmer I was, or at least uh, how poorly I was feeling. I had gotten so depressed and was still heavily grieving and just shocked, wondering what had become of my life. This I, I had had a really happy life. And it, now it was anything but that. And so... It it made it hard for me to have the will or the impetus to do anything proactive. Everything seemed to have gone into a reactive state. I knew I was in trouble once when I binge watched The Walking Dead for four days. (laughs) Uh, didn't didn't shave, barely ate, didn't get out of my little duplex, didn't change my clothes, didn't shower. I probably shouldn't be admitting this on a podcast, should I? I was just so depressed. And then I, with a what bumped me out of it, is I realized the reason I was watching this, I, I identified with both sides. I had had an apocalypse, an end of the world. My world had ended, and I felt like a walking zombie. So uh, I, I knew I had to do something. And so I realized if I was doing what had become ordinary to me, I wouldn't have extraordinary results. And so I would make it literally impossible to do what would come ordinary to me at the time. Um, My dad and I have always had a very close relationship, and he is the Russell Crowe of my life. Uh, He's run most of the world's major marathons. Uh, He's climbed every mountain in the Cascades and many others. He's climbed Hood like 30 times. I really respect him. And so I knew that if, before I had a chance to open Netflix, if I grabbed my swim bag, ran outside, called him up and said, this is how many laps I'm going to do today, for me it would make it impossible not to do that and then i also started a blog that a lot of my kansas friends started following and for me again if i tell people i'm going to do something i've got to follow through and so i just started putting markers in my life barriers to remain what for me had become ordinary we touched briefly on
1: what the science about your your healing versus the miracle and how it can be, it can be a mixture of, of both. I wrote a note down here to talk about current scientific evidence for mind-body connection and its influence on health outcomes.
2: Yeah, the more sophisticated our instruments become, uh, the easier it is to quantify. And now the the whole Descartesian mind-body split is kind of a thing of the past, I believe. And those that are doing mind-body research, I think, are doing uh, an ever better job of proving that. It's not just a placebo effect. They're finding that early immune suppressant indicators or immune booster indicators are shown when people are given what used to be called the placebo effect, which would then show that it's not just mental. And then there's a crazy guy, I don't know, he's one, he's become one of my favorite madmen. He uh, makes me look very normal. He's uh, from the Netherlands. His name's Wim Hof. Have you heard of him? Yeah, he's got 26 world records on being able to withstand cold. He's climbed up to the death zone of Everest in his shorts. He swims through glaciers. He's got the world's record for sitting in ice over two hours and when he was doing that when he was sitting in an ice bucket up to his neck uh, dutch scientists were drawing blood and checking it and one of the things they found that they were stunned by is they threw a bit of bacteria into his blood. Well, it should make his immune system go crazy and white blood cells go nuts. Nothing happened. And so, because of the way he's trained his mind and body, uh, something has intrinsically changed. But you know, I'm no scientist, no researcher, but there's just so much that your listeners can look up. All the way back to who I call the godfather of mind-body medicine, Herbert Benson. He wrote uh, the relaxation response in the late 60s. He was able to quantify and prove that just deep breathing elicits a mind-body response. He was the first to really start studying that. And then John Kabat-Zinn all the way from the 70s at UMass Medical Center has done wonderful research showing how mindfulness meditation can lower the feeling of or at least your awareness of pain or your experience of pain and chronic illness and then also boost the immune system as well. And then uh, Nippon uh, Medical University over in Japan has done a lot of study of how evergreen forests will boost the immune system. So when I got out of the river, my leukemia was gone, but my lymphoma was still very stubborn. And so in May of 2015, I started going up into the Mount Hood Wilderness every Thursday night with my backpacking hammock. And I had so much fun, and I noticed that it helped me emotionally so much that I thought, well, I'll do it till the rain starts. And then when the rain started, I just couldn't imagine not doing it because it had become such a wonderful, I call it uh, farming fun, planting seeds of fun into your week. It's something I've done ever since I uh, lost my wife and tried to rebuild my life. And I thought, well, the bad news is my life's a wreck. The good news is maybe I can thoughtfully and intentionally engineer my life I'd always been so busy that I'd never asked myself, what do I like to do and how can I seed my life or my week with those things? And so almost every day of the week now has something I look forward to. I wake up and I think, oh, it's Wednesday. I'm doing this Thursday. Oh, I'm going out to the wilderness and I think everyone should do that. It doesn't have to be something crazy like going out to the wilderness. Just whatever makes you really happy and feel alive. And again, we were to a point where my lymphoma had gotten so bad, they wanted me to do chemo and radiation. And I said, I will, but give me six months. And if I'm still doing this poorly after six months, then I'll do that. And so I determined to go out once or twice a week into the forest, stay all night. I only ended up doing it once a week. And this was May of 2015. By March of 2016, uh, the l- the lymphoma was gone.
1: That is insane. That's <laughs> insane. It's That's a insanely great. Wonderful. It's insanely wonderful. We're glad you're here. I'm very. I'm glad. I'm so glad you're here. So healthcare providers listening to the show, which I, I think most of the listeners out there are linked to health in some way. You know, might think you're insane for for saying that. Um, I'm I'm glad that your oncologists at the time were able to work with you and say, you know, you say, give me six months. Like I, this is something I need to do. And I and I don't work in cancer, but the very few people I've I've met in the oncological world are, are all it's about what the patient needs and like they're kind of designing their own treatment plan. And I I think that's so important and something in a lot of other subspecialties like cardiology are something that's lacking a little bit and it's very algorithmic in western medicine saying well you have you have coronary artery disease you need to take this you need to take this and like it will get better based on science very very black and white the way things are what would you say to healthcare providers listening that would absolutely deny that there is any mind-body connection that can influence health I mean, after listening to your story, I, I hope that they would have a more open mind to it. But if, if someone was coming up to you saying, "No, it wasn't, it wasn't anything you did that helped cure your leukemia or your lymphoma," if somebody really got in your face about it to say, you know, it, it was a fluke, it was something else, there there is no such thing as the b- mind-body connection. What what would you say to them?
2: Well, I'd say I'd take a non-research-based. Um, practical approach first, I'd say next time you have a fight with someone you love or lose someone you love, notice how you feel. Notice how your body's responding. Notice how much your eating and sleeping patterns have changed automatically uh, without you having to think about it. And uh, next time you have a really great time and even just a minute or two of belly laughter. Notice what's going on in your body. Uh, so that's just kind of an anecdotal, kind of practical approach, but I just don't think there's any way we can separate from the, the mind from the body. And what my, on, my oncologists, I, I just have to say, they worked with me and were wonderful. I wasn't bucking them. It kind of sounds like I'm one of those stubborn, resistant patients, and I don't know, maybe I'm in denial, maybe I was. <laughs> But they treated me like they were part of my team rather than they were my boss. They acted as consultants. They would give me their best guesses, and then I would throw alternatives off onto them. And then I would make my decision based on my life and what I was willing to basically gamble. And they would give me the odds of that gamble they were they were very very caring spent a lot of time and i think they're a big part of why this was successful for me
1: for me as a healthcare provider it can be complicated cuz sometimes like you said oh i hope i wasn't that patient cuz being a healthcare provider we've all had those patients who come in and and again i work in this very like ICU cardiac kind of world where you know th- the the thing the same things are prescribed over and over again but you know we do kind of forget every individual is different and everyone's health is a little bit different but um, I can I can just feel the eye rolling of of my of my coworkers sometimes let's say just this is a this is a pure made up example of somebody coming in with heart disease who says I'm not going to take any medications I'm going to cure my heart disease with meditation and turmeric. And I can just feel the eye rolling of everyone. Or I'm like, okay, you, you do you, you do you do your thing, and best of luck to you. So, I, I think there is there's a way to meet in the middle. I feel like, yes, I think meditation is important, and I think taking care of your mind and your body, like you said, pay attention to what is happening inside of you, and that will overall influence the other things. I don't think that the mind body connection, naturopathic medicine, good mental health practices, and spirituality and Western medicine, I don't think that they are mutually exclusive. And I think you're a prime example of that, and taking control of your own health and, and your own destiny, <laughs> if, if you will.
2: Well, and let me be very careful to point out that if my numbers had gotten to such an alarming point that the doctors said, boy, Dean, you just have to do this, I'd have done it in, the heart, in a heartbeat, um, because that would have been the most logical. Um, well-intentioned thing to do.
1: Yeah, and again, I'm not. We're not pinning Dean as one of those patients who says he's gonna,
2: <laughs> gonna do those
1: things, but but yeah, but the things that you're saying that you know to to a lot of mes- Western medicine practitioners, I feel like they would look at you and say you're insane. But I hope they they listen to your whole story and look at some of the the research I'm going to attach to the show notes about um, the blue mind theory and all this other stuff. So thank you for sharing those things so much with me. Switching gears a little bit from philosophical to storytelling, you were a marathon hospital patient, like in and out of ICUs and rehab and, and your clinics. What are your observations of healthcare professionals today?
2: Well, I think most have a really good heart. Um, I had some of the most uh, poignant moments of my life with those that really cared and some of the most awful moments of my life with those that were just doing a job and dismissive. I think if you're in the healthcare field and you're doing it as a job just to make a paycheck, you really ought to find a different way to make your money. Um, Because you are dealing with folks at the most difficult point in their lives and and probably the most scary point in their lives. But uh, yeah, it was kind of a mixed bag. Mostly wonderful though, even though it was extremely scary. Uh, There was one time my first oncologist, he was from Nigeria, his name was Anatoly Agundape. It took me like three months just to learn his name. But he was just this big, strong man. And once uh, in 2008, when I just about died of pneumonia, and I saw him for the first time after, I was leaving his office. He stopped in front of the door, put his hand on my shoulder, and he, he said in his uh, really beautiful accent, Go and be well, my friend. And I'm not a crier, but tears just I'd never had a doctor care for me like that because it was so authentic and honest and sincere and so completely caring it just it just floored me it it was just a moment like that and then when my wife was diagnosed uh, one of my best friends is a chief surgeon at a hospital and on the KU medical board and he pulled some favors to get in with one of the top uh uh, neurologists in uh, the world uh, in Kansas City. And this guy does laser guided brain surgery. Uh, so he wasn't a neurologist, he was a brain surgeon. Uh, he gave me, he felt so bad because Mary's tumor was one of the largest he'd ever seen and it was wrapped around her brain stem. And uh, most of you, since you're healthcare professionals, know that brain cancer. And being able to treat it is proportionate to the size, of course, and then how far forward it is and how high it is. And hers was the uh, worst case scenario. It was, it was low and deep and had a lot of ganglia and was gigantic. And there was nothing we could do. And after we went through all the options, the best option was to do nothing. And he gave me his personal cell phone number and said, you know, if you're just having a tough time, give me a call. And I actually did because I had a couple of questions. I was pretty sure he wouldn't answer. He did both times and spent quite a bit of time with me. And so there are those beautiful moments like that that I experienced that gave me hope.
1: Thank you for sharing that. Um. Sorry, I'm having a hard time too. <laughs> we're both, we getting a little teary. What would you fix about hospitals?
2: One of the things that I would fix is the sterility of the environment. That's one of the things the Japanese have done a really good job of proving and part of this blue mind theory that the immune system, uh, the respiration, and blood pressure change when there are plants in the room or even just a picture of a forest or a body of water. And so many of the hospital rooms I spent time in, there was very little, if anything, on the walls. It was just your typical either white or cream colored wall uh with a bed And uh, when you're feeling, speaking from experience, when you're feeling scared and not used to that environment, it's so otherworldly, kind of almost like you've been put on the surface of the moon because there is nothing that makes you feel at home there. It it makes you feel a bit desperate when you're already feeling desperate. So if I were to change anything, I would work really hard on colors and uh, what is in the room that makes you feel comfortable and at home.
1: You mentioned in our email correspondence that as a therapist, you have observed a lot of healthcare workers, perhaps as clients, over the years go through burnout. What is your advice for healthcare professionals out there who feel like they're completely ordinary or they have given up trying?
2: Well, I think you really have to take into consideration how Uh, And I know this is going to sound very melodramatic, how dangerous what we do is. Uh, You cannot have a steady diet of something toxic and something that's going to stimulate the fight or flight response, which you think you've overcome it because you've done it for 10 or 20 years. I've now been a therapist for 30 And the longer I do it, the more I realize what we do is dangerous. One of the clients that I've had most routinely for hypertension and stress and that has lapsed into chronic anxiety or depression are nurses. As a matter of fact, in 2003, I created a seminar just for nurses in Kansas. Because they were my most common client and my favorite client. Most of them are really bright, really fun, very hardworking, very caring. And so you can take that intelligence and if you can just get them to turn it on themselves and their lives, they get better. But most of them are ignoring their needs, their lives, their routines and doing these, uh, you know, 412s, which is kind (laughs) of. what I tell people now, because everybody's so addicted to their phone. uh, You charge your phone every night, right? Or how often do you recharge your phone? And they'll tell me and I'll say, "Uh, have you ever had your phone die? Well, everybody has. I'll say, "Uh, did you talk on it then? Did you get on the internet then? And they look at me like I'm stupid. I'm. When was the last time you recharged yourself? And they get it. Uh, but many of them still won't do it. And so when I talk about farming fun or seeding fun into your life, I think that's absolutely necessary, is do something intentionally several times a week they just help you to uh, make a collective sigh and decompress. Of course, I'm a big fan of meditation, but it doesn't have to even be that.
1: Dean, I have loved everything you shared with me. Thank you so much for taking the time today s- to sit down with me. Um, my last couple questions are, what are you doing now post-swim? Where are you swimming next? And uh, just tell us what the opposite of your timeline of tragedy is. Tell us about, tell us, us about what's going on with you now.
2: Oh, yeah. I've got so much that's the exact opposite that I think, for at least me, maybe not everyone, but it proves that whole idea that if you make it impossible to remain ordinary, then the extraordinary happens. I finished the swim, obviously, of the Willamette, kind of wandered around, and that's when I I was still pretty sick with the lymphoma, and that's when I started going out, venturing into the wilderness weekly. One of the things that I I believe when you just really go for it and treat life as a great adventure, uh, things happen, and you put yourself in a place to meet people and have odd occurrences that would never have happened otherwise one of them was uh k-pam terry boyd from k-pam interviewed me every monday wednesday and friday before i got in the river at the willamette and one of the people that listened to me on his drive in was the ceo of western psychological and counseling center and we struck up a conversation and he hired me and so i'm working for his agency and enjoying that that's probably not real sexy to hear about um what i was doing was I I decided that I had to keep doing these big swims. I was going to swim the River Shannon over in Ireland because my great-grandmother was Irish, and I've always just heard of Ireland as the land of dreams. I decided I was going to do that, but I met this beautiful yoga instructor. I thought I'd never fall in love again. I'd had a good run. I'd had a wonderful 30-year marriage. And uh, wasn't really even that interested. But when this beautiful yoga instructor slash fitness model, who was also a native Portlander, uh, liked me, I mean, who am I to say no, right? <laughs> uh, the funny thing about it, too, is she is the most even kind but strong person one time right before we got married I was doing the dishes with my daughter and she said you know dad you're kind of the drama queen of this relationship (laughs) I thought it was so funny what she I think she was doing was giving Bobby my wife now a compliment so I fell in love and I put that uh, swim off and then uh, my daughter my wife and I went over to Ireland in 2017 And I became the first person in history to swim that ancient river. The reason I did it is I wanted my daughter to have the same kind of healing experience being on the river day in, day out, uh, like I was. And not only did she get that healing, but we met the irish people are beautiful we met so many wonderful people and had so many fun times that she ended up staying in dublin and getting her master's in creative writing so that was a real wonderful event now i am trying to get ready to do my next big swim we're going down to new zealand in january it's still their summer there And I'm going to become, hopefully, uh, the first person in history to swim the entire length of the Clutha River. And the reason I selected it is the Shannon was so hard because really it's just a series of lakes. There was no current to assist me at all. And we had a 20 to 30 mile an hour headwind all but three of 27 days. It was just agonizingly difficult. So when I got home, I googled fastest flowing river in the world. (laughs) without white water (laughs) because I want a little assist I guess I'm getting old Uh, and so we're hoping to do that in January. Wow well best
1: of luck to you and best of luck to that river to have a force (laughs) like yourself swimming in it. Dean Hall is a licensed clinical marriage and family therapist, a success coach, an author, a motivational speaker, cancer survivor, and cancer adventurer.
2: I like that term.
1: You can find more about his story and his contact info at swimmingandmiracles.com. Anything else you'd like to share with us, Dean?
2: I am really glad I got this experience with you, Marie. Um, this was really the first big interview I got uh, at this point in my life. As I'm now looking, not only when I do these swims, I try to raise money for a childhood cancer foundation, But what I'm hoping is that I can get the world of swimmers out of the pool and into rivers as a form of what I call adventure environmentalism. If I do these adventures and then others follow me, what happens? Jacques Cousteau said, you protect what you love. And I love the Willamette. I always have, but now I really do. I told the head of Willamette River Keepers, uh, Travis Williams, that it's my river. And he laughed and he says, Well, I I guess you have a right to say that. (laughs) I'm hoping that I can move in that way. And to start here with another Portlander has just been a real honor. So thank you. Dean Hall, thank you so much.
0: there you have it. Thanks so much to Dean Hall for being today's guest. To learn more about his story, visit swimminginmiracles.com and find Dean on Instagram at swimminginmiracles. Today's episode is brought to you by Lux Pillow. Get your best sleep tonight by purchasing one of their highly rated products at LuxPillow.com. And don't forget to use the coupon code Toe, all one word, in your checkout to get yourself a nice 10% discount. Again, I'm Marie McMillan, and you've been listening to Head to Toe. You can find all of my creative work at mariemcmillan.com on Facebook and on LinkedIn. If you or a colleague has an extraordinary healthcare story to share, please email me at macmillanpages at gmail.com. If you like today's show, consider leaving a voicemail in the podcast feedback line at 503-512-0185, or give the show a like, subscribe, good rating, or just email me your thoughts. Thanks for listening. You guys are great. Until next time, take care.